Five years ago, the idea of the TV being a targetable, measurable ad platform was science fiction. Today, Mountain is helping brands do that by turning the TV into a performance marketing machine. With Mountain, your ads reach millions of viewers via tens of thousands of customizable audience segments and get seen exclusively on premium streaming networks. That's high-impact ads served at the right time, right place, and to the right audience. And if that wasn't futuristic enough, Mountain then automatically optimizes your campaigns thousands of times a day to ensure you're always at peak performance. The future is now. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is someone who has become a really, really dear friend, uh, both her and her husband, who I'm sure Mark's name will come up, uh, but uh, just a jewel of a person, introduced me to Education Africa, which I'm sure will also come up, Michelle, and most important for today, she's the author of a new book that's just coming out called Belonging. And it is a heartfelt, incredibly honest, warm, full of purpose and full of heart book. Uh, and we share something in common that will come up too, Michelle, about your story uh, that was very unpredictable, I think, for both of us. But this is about you. And I'm thrilled to welcome to Great Minds, the great Michelle Miller. I'm thrilled to be here, Lord Matt. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I love calling you Lord Matt. I just, I, the fact that I know a Lord, I love it. Oh, Michelle, it's it's one series of embarrassments after another. <laughs> and so, that's what makes it so amazing. We've got to talk. Well, I guess we shouldn't talk about that other little thing, but it's it's hilarious how down to earth and humble and yet wacky and gloriously joyful you are. Uh, considering the rank and and reason and and all of the great things that have come to you that you've made come in or have created in your life, I'm just thrilled to be here. So I'll shut up and oh my and, and we can this start is, to talk. This I really should get out right now. So <laughs> all right, so let's let's change the the tone a bit. All right, uh, because I want to start someplace that's more serious and someplace that's more meaningful. And there were so many places to start with you, Michelle. But I wanted to start with Dr. Ross Miller and talk about your dad and something that I read that was just, uh, I don't even know how to react to it. It was such a startling sentence to read, but that your dad, a physician, was the first physician at the site of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s assassination. And I'm sorry to begin us in such a serious place, but that's your dad. That's such an incredible moment, 1968, such an important year in American history in so many ways. Uh, but I'd love to start by reflecting on your dad, Dr. Ross Miller. To understand my father, you have to understand his parents. His, his mother, uh, Beatrice Burson Miller, was a native of Dallas, Texas, and went all the way across the country to attend Howard University in 1912 got her degree in 1916. Imagine the era that she had come through, segregation, 
uh, the, 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 the red terror, so to speak, uh, which is a time that uh, African-Americans had gone to war for this nation, come back, and there was such backlash. Also, the suffragist movement was taking place uh, during her time in, in, um, in Washington, D.C. And the March on Washington, the Women's March, it was taking place at a time when she was there and ever present in that conversation. So imagine she goes on to New York and then she uh, meets a guy on a, a train platform as she's uh, getting her master's from Columbia Teachers College and they start writing letters. That love story is amazing because a year and six weeks after they met, they eloped. So this man from whose own mother was the strength of, of the family, divorced her alcoholic husband, brought their children from West Palm Beach to Boston, Massachusetts, and created you know, this amazing life for them. One daughter went on to uh, gain her master's degree. Her son gained a master's degree. They both uh, went on into education. The daughter, uh, Lucy uh, Mitchell, um, was one of the founders of Head Start in Boston. The Y there, she was the first African-American who um, was on the YWCA board, and they initiated this amazing thing called Head Start, and she was called down to D.C. to help administer it nationwide. So, that's kind of like the family I was born to. Um, that side, the 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 Ivy League side on on my dad's side, the historically black colleges and university side. So my dad went like his grandmother to Howard, uh, and he went at the age of sixteen. He got his medical and uh, BS degree in six years and launched right into medicine full throttle, was under the tutelage of the great Charles Drew. Uh, and, and so imagine this community of people who helped to instill not only excellence in education, but excellence in how you live your life, um, how you, how you um, make sure that you leave the world a better place. Um, an activist, because his grandparents were activists in East St. Louis, where he was raised, ensured that, you know, what little they had, they shared. And in fact, um, they they helped his best friend get to Howard University after he was accepted because he didn't have the money for the train. I mean, making sure you take care of community. And so here we are in the 60s. My father was a political activist. He was a civil rights activist. He was the first African-American uh, on the Compton City Council. And he was a delegate for Kennedy because he believed in Robert F. Kennedy's mission as he stepped into the ring of presidential politics like his brother had done and believed that he saw the future for this nation and ensured it was accessible to everyone. And there was such elation after a full day, two, three days of campaigning in South Los Angeles, where at the time it was mostly African-American, uh, but there were pockets of Hispanic Americans, pockets of Asian Americans, but had such 
rallied al along the likes of Rayford Johnson and Rosie Greer to muster up enthusiasm for this candidate. They win the California primary and uh, in one fail swoop, it all comes crashing down. And I, I, you know, I don't, I could get into the specifics, I could get into the specifics of that night, but I, I, I think what's so incredibly important is for a whole generation of people who were part of, of that campaign, it was a total loss of innocence and a total heartbreak, um, to believe so fully in someone and, 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 and in a mission, right? Um, and here I was six months old, right? And so I'm segueing into another aspect of, of my life story because my dad had me just six months before. And uh, the irony is, as I was moving back with my grandmother to Los Angeles, they were on the tarmac the moment that Robert F. Kennedy and his family, his body was being sent back East. Um, my grandmother would tell it like, it, it's chilling to think that those two things were going on at the same time, that they coincided, that we had to wait. There was a semi all stop, she said, for that plane to take off. Um, and so th that kind of gives you a bit of who my family was, um, an educated family, not a wealthy family, but an educated family that um, really was hoping to change the world for the better for people who have been mar marginalized and left out for so long. You are such a, a storyteller, Michelle. And let's stay where you took us uh, for a few minutes longer because it's so interesting. You use the words loss of innocence. And when you look at that year in particular, and I think we have a tendency to romanticize the past. I think that's part of what we all do. Uh, but it seems in comparison to where we are today in this fractured political environment in America, that there was a romance of sorts, a hope, a set of ideals that were very different in the late 60s at that time. And so many people's lives were cut short. Just as a storyteller now, putting your co-host of the CBS Saturday Morning show on for a moment, reflect on the number of lives cut short and how things could have been different for us. Well, you know, there's a lot, there is a, a lot of guesstimating on that, but I can, I can say for sure. And, you know, there are lives that were cut short that most of America wasn't really that uh, engaged in, but that meant so much to the African-American community. So let's start, let's start with the death, the murder of someone who helped launch the modern day civil rights movement. And that would be Emmett Till, this young boy who was murdered um, in Mississippi for not keeping his place, whistling at a woman or, or having some kind of exchange with a woman. And, and Rosa Parks saying she had her, she had this young man's death and the fact that his killers were acquitted 
um, in the back of her mind when she said, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to get up from that seat on that bus. To people who were working in the day to day when, and so I guess what I want to point out is when, when things start to get better, people get really scared. And so you started to see um, in, at the end of the, you know, in, in, you started to see integration in certain areas that scared a lot of people, particularly in the South. And it's this groundswell of, 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 of support for the Montgomery bus boycott. And then the freedom marchers, you started to see people really gain ground in voting rights. And that scared people who didn't want things to change in certain places. And then you think about people like Medgar Evers being shot down in his his own front yard. And I say that that was particularly um that was that that had a particular impact on on my life now only because I look at it through the lens of my husband Mark Morial. His father was the president of the local NAACP branch in New Orleans, just like Medgar Evers was in, I believe, Jackson, Mississippi, where he was gunned down. Um, and, and you think about the fears of people at a time when they were making these changes is doing things just so people had the right to vote. And then you had in 65 in New York City, um, Malcolm X, who then has separated himself from uh, uh, an institution that was also about segregation. Let's be real about that. Um, and had, had, had tried to enlighten himself uh, on the greater context of what Islam was uh, all over the world. And he's gunned down. Um, and then you have Martin Luther King Jr., who is gunned down. Now we we didn't even talk about a president of the United States being assassinated in the South. Um the man who has all of the protection in the world and and then some 5 years later his brother gunned down for attempting to uh, extend the reach and legacy of you know I, to me I'm sure a family, but more so, I think Robert Kennedy had turned a different direction at a time in his life away from status quo politics, because you look at what he did and this groundswell coalition building that he really believed in. And I'm talking politics here, which is really not my my level of expertise, but you take all of that over the course of, of 13 years, and, and you think of the great changes that took place uh, because of the deaths of these people. I mean, I don't sometimes, I wonder if John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy had lived, would he have been able to accomplish what Lyndon Baines Johnson was able to accomplish? The great, um, they call him the great compromiser. Um, he was an incredible uh, 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 senator of his time, he got staunch segregationists to go along with the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts. Think about that. A, 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 a child of the South 
in the presidency who then, because of this assassination that took place in 1963, was able to accomplish what he did in 64 and 65. Um, and I think, you know, the pain of that time and the changes that were taking place, the backlash in, in juxtaposition to the, the great, great changes that allowed for people, not just Black people to vote. Think about this. The Civil Rights Act gave, is, is, is the basis for Asian Americans getting their rights, Hispanic Americans getting their rights. Um, uh, it is the foundation for the LGBTQ uh, uh, community for, for the rights that have now been established at the constitutional and the and the Supreme Court level. So you think about all of that, but then there was this swing back um, and also anger and angst from the African-American community that, that happened because you had a number of killings by police in various cities after, you know, this anger and frustration over the deaths of these people. Um, it, it 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 was such a tumultuous time and the Vietnam War that was raging and people starting to say, wait a minute, something is wrong. So you you take all of the context of, of those times and you and you put my dad in a bad marriage um, and you put you put him uh, across from a beautiful woman who was also at a point in time, according to her was trying to discover who she was as um, a, a, a Mexican, a, a daughter of Mexican-American parentage who was looking for a better life. And then you think what brought them together because she was enamored with this obviously amazing, uh, successful, uh, committed man. And she was you know, at that point in time, uh, trying to engage in her roots in a way that perhaps many had had been uh, attempted to be shamed about who they were because they were from across the border. And so I understand all of this. Um, and I never, and, and so to the point, I'm talking over any possible questions you might have in asking me this, but one just kind of segues to the other. And, and the question you might have for me is, um, have I ever, did I ever fault my mother for giving me up? No, I, I, I don't fault my mother for giving me up. I don't fault her for it. My, my husband uses the term abandoning me. Um, that I I do believe was the greatest gift she could have given me because she handed me to two people, my grandmother and my father, who I think helped me become the most that I possibly could. What I fault my mother for, what I fault her with is her inability to accept and acknowledge me as a full grown adult when I asked her to, after her mother and father had passed, after her husband had passed, that is what uh, sort of led to this book. And this need, I realized, you know, people were always saying that we don't need acknowledgement or we don't need, you know, this sense of, 
of, of being recognized. And what I realized is, yeah, that is what has driven me my entire life is this utter need to find my place, acceptance, and acknowledgement, which is, which, it, and I, I, I say that in tandem, and it's probably why I am such a stickler um, for exposing the the untold stories of so many people uh in this in this country in this world who who haven't been acknowledged for all of the amazing contributions that they've made to our society and simply because of their marginalization through race creed color religion and so forth I want to talk a little bit about your career journey, but Belonging is a book about a personal journey. And you took us there, so let's stay there. The book tells your story. You leapt into the swimming pool. And by the way, we're much better off without me asking any questions. But tell us about the origin of the book. Set the stage. You're raised by your father and grandmother. I want, just give us the... Uh, I don't want to say the Cliff Notes version, but give us the basic foundation points of your story. And then let's talk about belonging in a little bit more detail, because it's such an amazing, amazing book. Thank you for sending it. I got it first. Isla gets it next. So, <laughs> Well, I guess I can start with what my colleague and friend, Anthony Mason at CBS News, told me was the first line of my book. It's not. But it's a great line, and that is, I am my mother's secret. Let's start there. And uh, my mother my mother uh, handed me to my father when I was born, and I would learn later many different details about that transaction, that transaction, that exchange. But I was I was my father's secret at that point in time. The only person I think he told was his sister. And he sent me off at two days old with his sister's friend um, back to Birmingham. Because again, my father was married with two adopted children and was a very prominent member of the uh, Southern California community. And so I was his secret too. Um, I just, you know, I'm just so grateful he, he had me and loved me. Um, but yes, I mean, my dad was a complicated person, um, perhaps not so, not so, I think a lot of people are complicated. We just don't know about it. Right. And, um, and he decided to tell his mother after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. He said he did not want another day to go by if something had happened to him in his fight for civil rights. Um, if he died, his mother not to know from him that she had a grandchild. And uh, so when my grandmother found out about me, she went to Birmingham, which is where her daughter was, and she collected me and came back and I was her baby. And here I was for, you know, several years and sort of living in this idyllic space of my grandmother's home in South Central Los Angeles with incredible neighbors who looked after me and, and loved me and 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 I have such fond memories of. Uh, and it, that sort of, that point in time, the book, when you start to realize as a child that you are different from those around you, like everyone in my neighborhood 
had a mother and a father or they were grandparents and they were a part of a what what is deemed a normal family so that when I when I started going to school and the conversations started to change because people started to notice things and people would ask me questions that's when I realized that my family life was a little bit different and you know we're we we assign value to that in a way that is not always kind to to the children who are in situations that are um, not normalized. And so, you know, th those are some of the feelings that I talk about in the book and experiences that I talk about in the book and are, are really, I think, um, you know, lessons to us all and myself included on how to treat people and how to be accepting. Um, but, 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 but that, that is sort of, that is my origin story. It's an incredible story. And, and I want to dive deeper into a different area. I know you're doing a lot of press. Isla and I are very excited to come see you later this month with Gail King and that you'll be on the circuit. But here's a question that I think you may not get asked and I'm going to ask it now. So I have a story also. Here we go. Two parts, story and then question. So my story is at the age of 35, I learned that I am one of five full blood siblings. I'm adopted. I grew up an only child, was never curious, never looked. My parents told me I was adopted as soon as I was old enough to understand. And at the age of 35, a big decision was made about what I should know. And uh, it was revealed to me, not of my choosing, and there's some good parts to it also, that uh, I'm one of five. I did not write a book. There was actually someone who wrote a book years ago, this happened about give or take 23 years ago, for me, that was a, a, a book about adoption and somebody was putting together an episode of Oprah. And they reached out to me and said, do you and the other, the other four wanna come on and be on the show? and I was the oldest, it was my decision. And I said, no. And I'll tell the story as I am now, because it's a good story. Um, but I never wanted to write a book. You chose to write your story. This must have been, you know, jostling around in your mind, you know, sort of rattling around. I'm thinking of that ping pong balls and the lottery machine, you know, imagery for a long period of time. Talk about how this has been with you, the story that you wrote in Belonging for so long, and that process and decision to take something that's so internal and personal and make it public. So can I make a confession? Yes. I don't think I ever wanted to write a book. I think people around me wanted me to write this book, beginning with my husband, Anyone I shared the story thought I should write a book, including my my bestie Anthony Mason, um, and the idea of writing a book always sounds good, and so sort of you know in the, the back of my mind, okay, I'll write a book one day. Um, I remember um, talking to a woman by the name of Carolyn Clark, who also has a very similar story to yours. She wrote a book. I interviewed her about that book. 
Um, it's a book about how she was the granddaughter of Nat King Cole and her story and finding her mother. And she was one of the people who helped me uh, through this process. Um, but something she said when I launched into the book process, she said, are you sure? And I said, I don't know if you're ever sure. She said, you, you better get ready and you better be sure. And how this book came about <laughs> was I was assigned a story by my boss four or five days after the assass uh, the murder of George Floyd. I was hiking with one of my colleagues from work and um, in 2020, uh, and I picked up the phone after he said, we need you to give the perspectives that you always bring into the conversation on race and unconscious bias and, you know, community policing. Um, and we want you, because we know you lived in South Central in 1992 during the riots and the revolt as a result of the acquittal of the uh, LA4. And we know you what we we know what you covered, Ferguson, um, uh, George Zimmerman, I mean, you know, the Trayvon Martins of the world and the um uh, and the Emmanuel Nines and all of the things that you have seen and covered. And we want you to give a perspective piece. And I picked the phone up and in five minutes I recited the piece. And in a quirk, twist of fate, or a necessity to just mark why racism is, is so vile to me. I, I told in 15 seconds my origin story. And the reaction from the story, the reaction to that 15 seconds was so swift and so incredibly um so incredibly resonated with so many people, including including Gail King and including a HarperCollins publisher that within 37 minutes, said publisher reached out to me via email from the point in time that the piece aired and told me how moved she was and how she felt it was a book and how she wanted to publish it. And that's sight unseen for me. I had no book proposal. I had none of that. And um, she just, I just felt if someone feels, not just someone, if all these people feel I have something to say and it will do some good, then okay. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, if that, sound, if that sounds trite, if that sounds, it maybe, maybe I did once, but I, you know, this is every step of the way has been, there's been a relevant, there's been, there's been some hesitancy and quite frankly, an admission, I can't do it by myself. I don't know how to pull for myself. I don't know how, I don't know how to do that. And so I had a partner, her name is Rosemary Robotham and she is freaking incredible because none of this would have been able to come out without her. And so I definitely wanna give her 
a big uh, bounce of credit and appreciation. Um, but it's not an easy task and it is a lot of work and it takes a lot of self-exploration. And I'm not used to doing this with myself. I do it with other people. Right. And um, it, it was it was an uphill climb. Yeah, and I, I would just say as someone, you know, and you and I have become good friends over the years along with Mark, but, you know, you've unearthed an awful lot of stuff that's been part of your life. And make sure you protect yourself because it's very, you're very, it's very raw to talk about all those things. And that's, you know, that's really brave of you in so many respects uh, and so inspirational. Thank you. No, really true. All right. Can we talk about your career journey a little bit? Because that's so interesting also. And, and I feel like somebody's going to cry here and I, I don't want it to be me. It's going to be you. It's uh, going to be you. I'm a, I'm a very big crier. <laughs> I'm a very big crier. So um, something else we share was starting off early in our career as interns. And uh, after Howard, and I know you also have a, a master's degree from the University of New Orleans, you started off as an intern, I think, at Nightline and the Minneapolis Star Tribune way back when. Can we talk about sort of those early days? Because uh, while we're talking so much about your personal journey, you are also a tremendous world-class journalist. And those earliest seeds were, were planted then as an intern. I was so fortunate to be around people who were the masters of their craft. Um, I think about Ted Koppel, just watching him. The irony is I work with him still. Uh, he is a contributor to CBS Sunday Morning. And um, as as a young intern, like we sort of got, we got started off on the wrong foot. Um, and it was so funny because I was so excited. Um, and his reaction, because I was talking to someone in the office was, I kind of, you got to read the book to get the full context, but it was so hilarious, his reaction. He and I realized he was a fair person. He, he, you know, think about it. This was 1980s. Um, and I think about how he snapped off something and I snapped back. And then he, he kind of looked at me. He said, well, all right then. Okay. She got some gumption. And I think he has such a masterful wit. Um, and uh, I just, I, 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 I don't have the wit, but I do in, in a moment, boy, I can, it comes out like that. And, uh, uh, and I learned so much from his ability. He has such restraint with respect to that line that we dare try not to cross. And his ability, he has such a, a a clever, uh, succinct mind. So, you know, you go to sort of like studying someone and in, in their process like that to uh, people who don't have big names, who I worked with, you know, at the Los Angeles Times as an intern after I graduated from college to these incredible working journalists who were part of that class of journalism uh, reporters who before there were uh, official uh, uh, degrees in the subject who you know just had a knack for writing and digging. And I, I am so grateful to them. Um, 
but sort of a self-awareness moment I discovered. And it's in the book that I talk about because it was a seminal moment for me in realizing this, this notion as journalists that we talk about so much is objectivity. And we talk a lot about it. And objectivity, I think, is a goal, a pursuit. But I don't think any person is completely objective. I mean, we have the lens, we have, we can be fair and accurate and truthful, um, but that we are seeking objectivity, but you always have to sort of kind of step back for a moment and, and kind of count yourself among those who is still human. And I'll never forget being in the auspices of, of the, the Star Tribune and it was I was there with a number of minority journalists and also the 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 brass and and the journalists uh, who in the newsroom. We were all part of this seminar and being told by one of the editors uh, addressing these minority journalists or interns, I should say, uh, you all will be great, which was lovely. Uh, but there's just one thing you must remember. And you must remember to set aside your blackness. In order to be a good journalist, you're going to have to set that aside. And I just, it just floored me. For some reason, it hit me in a way, I don't know it was if it was because I had grown up in the journalism department of an historically black college. And that, that notion would, would have never, was something that would never come to us. But it just slapped me in the face in a way that um, I, I had to react to it. And I was a junior, ascending junior into my senior year. And I just raised my hand like a shy student. And I said, sir, I was not born a nine pound, nine ounce journalist. I was born a black, a black girl. I don't know how to set that aside to do a profession. I can be truthful and fair and all of these other uh, other things, but I think that's an that's an entirely different thing you're asking me to do. I can't do it. Has anyone asked you to set to to set your white maleness aside? And it was like you could hear a pin drop because it was like I it was like oh wait a minute. Because I think everyone got it. Like, wait a minute. Because, you know, whiteness is so normalized. Maleness back then was so normal. Like, that's the norm. The norm of people working, the norm of people being in that profession. I mean, think of, we live in a very different time than, than women were not in this profession by and large, in large numbers. And certainly not people of color. And so it it was an aha moment and a lot of people had not expressed it that way. So many people came up to me afterwards and were like, wow, thank you. Or wow, yeah, you told him. I mean, and these are white men. And they were like, we're so glad you said that. I was like, why? But I was like, because one, we don't think like that, but we have banners or these things that they think we are too. I didn't go to an Ivy League school, but they think because I don't have an Ivy League education that therefore, you know, I come from, I'm less than. I was like, wow, there are all of these specters that are 
infiltrating our psyche based on what society says is quote unquote normal or accepted or cherished, acknowledged. And so like then like sort of it, it, it opened me up to seeing beyond just race is a factor of how people aren't included all the time. And so it's like, oh, people are always trying to exclude people. Why? That's not nice. That's not nice. And so let's be inclusive, inclusive of everyone. And let's not be mean because niceness should win. Right? Isn't that the bottom line? I know I'm, I'm reverting to little Michelle. No, no, no. It's uh, <laughs> you're, you're so right. And, you know, it reminds me of the night we spent uh, a couple of years ago at the Apollo Theater when you came up to our show with Mary J. Blige and benefit for the Nelson Mandela Foundation. And that was the messaging of that night is about, you know, we're all in this together. And if Mandela can spend 27 years in prison and then devote the rest of his life and his presidency to forgiving his enemies, turning them into friends and reconciliation, maybe there's a little something we could learn. What was so wonderful about history to me is because I think, you know, we're caught up in this whole sense of, you know, we can't judge people for the context of their time or beyond it. And, you know, I say to people, I was like, if I didn't know more about some of the amazing, some of the amazing people who were allies, who were fighting for the right reason, who like there were tons of people who knew slavery was wrong and were fighting against it. There were tons of people who knew that second class citizenship for women was wrong and they were fighting against it. There were tons of people who were fighting for for religious rights and, and for equality on all these other levels. I mean, consider that the constitution, you didn't have the right to vote unless you had property. That takes a whole lot of people out of the game for being citizens of this nation. And that's how this nation was set up from the beginning. You had to be white, you had to be male, and then on top of it, you had to own property. And so what I'm saying is, is that we had a lot of allies fighting to include a lot of us and they were white, and they were male. And so let's go and find our here our real heroes that we should be lifting up and putting on pedestals or at least just acknowledging for who they were. I mean, from that we know about the Ben Franklins and the John Adams, but a lot of folks don't know about the Benjamin Rushes or the Newt Knights. And we need to investigate their histories so we know that it wasn't just, you know, black black, black, brown, and women people folks fighting for themselves. There were a lot of people out there trying to help us and allyship really matters. And, and we need to like, I just, I, I believe we need to know our entire history. So well said. So, so let's talk about the city of New Orleans, which has played an outsized role in your life and Mark's life. Um, uh, my favorite city in America, you know, very lucky to get to travel around the world. And people always talk about and want to talk to me about New York or Los Angeles and a few other places in America. Miami's hot now. New Orleans almost never comes up internationally. Uh, 
Really? What, and, what circles have you been traveling in? And uh, no, I, I, you know, against my white friends in the United Kingdom, for example. And, you know, to me, New Orleans is the jewel of America. And I think it's the best thing we got. So can I just stop you right there? Yes. Okay. So one, nowhere I've traveled extensively too, not as much as you have, but you know, it always, it, 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 it's, it's a point of particular awe when I go into a city and there's a jazz club with Louis Armstrong's name and, or New Orleans. I mean, I'm talking everywhere from Bangkok, Thailand. Oh, no, cultural, in, cultural, in. Yeah. hang on now. And, Let me try to save they myself. They know New Orleans, they don't know Louisiana. Yeah. But the other thing about England, I'll have you know, is back in 2000, no, uh, maybe it was 97, 98. There was, it was some point in time perhaps b before I got married, that the government of, of London, uh, they were in a really important campaign to centralize government, local government. Uh, they had a series of Lord Mayors, pardon the expression, um, where these weren't mayors really didn't have it were ceremonial positions and what they wanted to do was centralize government in a way that um that they gave the mayor um uh some real heft and they were on a campaign to do it and they invited your friend mark morial to come over um and the british government paid for him to go over there and he was he went all over the country. They must have known about New Orleans to ask him specifically to go. They won the campaign, which is why the the new London mayor's position is is as strong as it is, because he he went over and talked about the strength of having a strong executive uh, 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 role. It, it, it leading leading the charge for cities and um do you know what the paper they, there was a paper that came out uh based on an interview that he had done and the headline to the paper was uh the man who made the black man who might become the first american president this was 10 years before anyone before the campaign of barack obama and we kind of laughed at, oh, they don't understand American politics. But look at that. Ten years later, we had a black president. So they knew something about New Orleans. Over no, there. no. I, let me try to save myself because I think I completely cocked that up. So I love New Orleans. And I think um, just as the world has embraced so much of American culture, I think you're absolutely right. The music of New Orleans, the the culture and food of New Orleans are among our greatest cultural exports. I love New Orleans. And what I was trying to ask was how your time there shaped you and some of your fond remembrances of what I absolutely believe. And I did think I got this part right. I do believe is the jewel of America. Did I save myself a little or I just, uh, you no, know, I, I didn't, I don't, think you I, I think we were on the same page I was just right. I just had a I, I think maybe you're saying that New Orleans in your mind should be on the top of people's correct lists. correct yes yes yeah 
All right, I think I buried myself. Okay, a little, we're on the same this, page. This is about you. This is more. This is again. This is about you, not me. Give us some of your fondest remembrances of your time there. You spent a lot of years there with Mark. Oh my fun! Oh my gosh! This is a hard question. I know, I know. I mean, the best, the best. Okay, so New Orleans is an event city. It it knows how to have a party. And there are two amazing times of year for me. And Mardi Gras is great, but the best times are the Jazz Fest and the Essence Festival because you have music, you have celebration, you have food, you have culture, and it brings people from all over the world. And there's such a communion of joy around music. And music, I think, is one of those great equalizers and one of those great bridgers. And it's just a wonderful time. And I'm so proud because Mark is one of the reasons why Essence, he is the reason why Essence not only came to New Orleans, uh, but it's why they stayed in New Orleans. And so I, I love, I love, love, love you know, music. And I love the, the, I, I love the times that I've spent in celebration there for those two occasions. Um, I just, I think one of the great things about um, New Orleans is how it has been the center of political and uh, community activism for hundreds of years. I mean, it has such an incredible history and to walk around every corner and you are stumbling across some point at which something incredible happened, whether it was enslaved people who were taking or trying to take back their culture and at a time when they were, their culture was, there was an attempt to erase it as a, as a means to hold onto them as a means to to break them and they they denied that they denied that and that's a place in Armstrong Park that everyone knows as Congo Square where everyone communed when they could when on the day pass on Sundays that was that was such a strong cultural cultural lineage to you know the the legends of 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 people like Marie Laveau and uh, PBS Pinchback, a reconstructive uh, era politician who um, became the first black governor uh, in the United States, to people fighting and resisting the backlash against reconstruction with constitutional conventions and, and uh, Jim Crow and and their attempt to equalize the playing field with the Plessy versus Ferguson um, case, and ultimately that being the death knell uh, for sixty years for true equality in this country, to uh, these the social aid and pleasure clubs of these communities, these institutions built by Black people to ensure their cultural heritage and also to ensure uh, a network that could help people who are less fortunate than them and and could could take care of the community with 
with with hunger, with burial, with with ensuring people had you know some some connectivity to to community to I mean, let's face it. This was the when I moved to New Orleans. You had an eighty percent voter participation. People believed in voting, exercising their constitutional rights. They had. I mean, it's just there's so much that New Orleans is and was and the the dark side of of things was sort of this awakening to even in a place is incredibly rich with culture and a gumbo mix you have still such um you have people who wanted to exclude and continue to separate um themselves from the the greater community so you know, it, it it was a lesson for me in humanity, a lesson for me in history, a lesson for me in uh, allied partnerships and coalition building, because there was always people from every community trying to buck the 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 tide of trying to stay segregated. You know what I mean? Um and so it was a great lesson. It was a it was a wonderful time for me. But it was also it was you know it was a, a time where I saw a lot of ugliness too. Well, I'm so glad we got to talk about uh, the great city of New Orleans. Any time spent talking about New Orleans is time well spent. And your perspective is so great, Michelle. It's it's so filled with such such heart. And, and you really know what the hell you're talking about. And, and it, it's just a joy to talk to you and talk about belonging, talk about everything else that we touched on. Before we got on the air, Michelle, you mentioned Motown. Can we talk about Motown? And I think you have a story to share with us. When I was growing up in South Central Los Angeles, there were times that I got to go to parties in Beverly Hills and enjoy the fabulous home and the fabulous festivities of my uh, cousins through marriage who were the children of Diana Ross. So you can imagine a seven, eight-year-old looking up at Diana Ross and just thinking I was in heaven because she was everything. And she lived in this beautiful home and she was so gracious to me and to all the other kids who were always like running through there on these occasions of her, her daughter's birthdays or celebrations. My cousin, little Tommy was her nephew. So uh, her sister Rita was a great, she always looked out for me. And, you know, it was why when I went back to, um, to visit her mom, she would always like I would stay with her mom, you know, during the summer when I would go visit my cousin. And it was just, you know, it was just, you felt kind of special. I remember coming back from one of those parties and telling my classmates in South Central what I had done. And they looked at me like, no, you didn't. And the next day, one coming back at me saying, my mother called Diana Ross on the phone and she said she does not know you. And I said, no, wait a minute, did you mention little Tommy? And the notion that 
she really didn't talk to Diana Ross never entered my mind because, you know, I just, I think there's, there's such a, I mean, there's just like, I believed her. Why wouldn't I, why could, and I think that my ability of, I, 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 I have a belief that anybody can experience anything based on my ability to do the same, which is why I don't discount sometimes what people tell me. I, of course, investigate and make sure it's true, but these out, these outside stories, uh, outsized stories sometimes we hear, my my friends are like, why, why do you suspend belief? You know, I was like, no, I, I, that could happen. You know, funny things happen to people. So until, you know, I, I think that's kind of a, that's one thread of difference between me and some of my colleagues. <laughs> the idea that anything's possible sometimes enters my mind when I talk to people, because I know the varying degrees of separation people can have to events, to people that, 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 you know, the truth sometimes is stranger than fiction. And I love the connectivity we are as human beings because I sure as have had uh, a lot of of amazing things happen to me and connect to I've connected to some amazing people. So I it, I just I'm a wonder when it comes to that, and I, I I love that. Absolutely fantastic, and you are real. The book is real. Belonging. Uh, tells an incredible story. You're an incredible storyteller. We'll keep watching you every Saturday on uh, CBS. And uh, we're going to have to do a part two and talk about Education Africa. Oh, uh, let's do and, that. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us here on Great Minds, Michelle. I hope I didn't monopolize the conversation on things that have absolutely nothing to do with the book, but I certainly enjoyed the conversation. And please, everyone, pre-order your book or order your book. I promise you it's it's worth the read. It absolutely is. And we would be better off if I asked no questions in your case. So thanks again. For years, advertisers struggled to tie measurable outcomes to TV ads. Today, brands can measure their impact down to the last decimal. Mountain's self-serve connected TV marketing software provides real-time insights that can take the guesswork out of ad measurement. With Mountain, you can build customizable dashboards with the metrics that matter most and compare your campaigns to other channels with leading web analytics integrations. You can even track when viewers visit your website or make a purchase, regardless of what household device they use. Visit Mountain.com to learn more.